Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist, policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right. This week, Kathy Young of the Bulwark is sitting in for Linda Chavez, and our special guest is Philip K. Howard, author of many books, most recently, Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. So thanks, one and all. We are going to get to the legal troubles of the former president and a look back at the uh, Iraq War 20 years later. But first, I am very happy to have Philip K. Howard because your book is very stimulating. So we've discussed on this podcast many times the baleful effects of both police unions and teacher unions on the public good. But you go even further. Now, please give examples if you'd like, but you are really against all public sector unions and you doubt whether they're even constitutional. Yeah, that's correct. What's happened is that it's a recent phenomenon. Public employee unions were only allowed to collectively bargain in the late 1960s and no one really debated it or thought much about it. And for the last 50 years, they've basically seized control of the operating machinery of government. So there's no accountability. It's really very difficult to manage any public office. There's anything unusual happens. There's a pandemic where the contract doesn't say anything about teaching in a pandemic. So that all has to be negotiated and the teachers don't go back to school for two years. So many examples, the services, trash collection costs twice as much as it should. And in large cities. When you say it's twice as much as it should, you cite data showing that public union collected trash costs twice as much as private carriers. That's correct. And during the pandemic, the MTA needed or thought it needed to sanitize the subway cars in New York City, and they didn't have the manpower to do that. So they hired some private contractors. And it turns out they did three times the work of the public employees because the work rules of the public employees were so restricted that they basically minimize their productivity. Mm -hmm. So you have contracts basically designed for inefficiency. And what I argue in the book is I'm looking at it from the standpoint of democratic governance so that voters elect a mayor or governor, and they actually don't have the authority to fix a lousy school or fire a rogue cop or do the things that they're elected to do. And so I make the argument based on core constitutional principles that these controls should be unconstitutional. Yeah. And you make a point that the big way that public employee unions are different from private sector unions is that they sit on both sides of the negotiating table, right? I mean, whereas a private union, you say, has to be concerned that if it asks for too much, the employer might go bankrupt or the employer might leave town or, you know, leave the country or something. There are no constraints on how much can be demanded of a public employer because the ultimate person paying the bill is the taxpayer, not the employer per se. Yeah, that's correct. So if a trade union bargain for inefficient work rules, they would find that they soon didn't have their jobs. In the public sector, the public sector unions do nothing but argue for inefficient work rules, and the government can't move, so so the taxpayers pay for it. 
But collective bargaining also did something worse, which is it enabled the public sector unions to organize the mass of public employees into this interest group, which against the reform of big government, you know, the mass of big government against the reform. The Teachers Union in New Jersey gave tens of millions of dollars to the Democrat running for governor. Union employees were the senior staff of his campaign headquarters. Busloads of union members manned the phone banks and did door-to-door canvassing. And then when he gets elected, they sit, they go to negotiate the collective bargaining agreement. And it's not a negotiation, it's a payoff. This is a question of how much they can get away with. By the way, I'm a uh, product of the New Jersey public schools, and it was a mixed bag, let us just say. (laughs) Of course, any system is going to have some really great teachers, and I did have some, but boy, had some real doozies, like my third grade teacher who told us there was no gravity on the moon. And being the child of a science teacher, I raised my hand and said, but then how are the astronauts going to walk around when they get there? Because I was in third grade before we landed on the moon, I'm sorry to say. Happy to say, actually. But anyway, she said, well, they're going to bring it in their boots. Well, there you are. (laughs) But anyway, okay, that's a little tour into my education. But all right, I have one more question for you before I turn you over to the panel. There are examples in American life like we saw recently in Wisconsin, where a governor, you know, and you talk about this in the book, he, together with Republicans in the legislature, he overturned union power and they fought back very hard, but he won. He won that battle. So why isn't that the path that, you know, you're recommending? (laughs) Well, the exceptions prove the rule. First of all, that was a brutal four-year battle. He never would have gotten elected in the first place had he actually disclosed he was going to try to get rid of union controls because they would have made sure he didn't get elected. Then after he won that battle, they got tens of millions of dollars and initiated a recall campaign. He won that. Then they got a friendly DA to indict him for campaign finance violations with the recall election, which they actually got somewhere with until the Wisconsin Supreme Court threw it out. For four years, it ruined his career. The next year after Scott Walker did that, John Kasich tried similar reforms in Ohio, got them passed. And the same year, the unions, the national unions came in, put a public referendum on the ballot to undo those reforms. And again, with lots of money behind it, succeeded. So for every success, there are many failures. And the lesson of dealing with the public unions is that if you cross them, even with a modest reform, they will bring in national money and get you unelected. You really have to be... You have to tread carefully. Yeah. 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 Um, Bill Galston, FDR, great hero of Democrats and progressives. He opposed public sector unions. He was a great fan of private sector unions, but didn't think the public sector should be uh, allowed to strike and so forth. So what do you make of all this? Two things. First of all, Phil, hello. We haven't talked in a while, uh, but it's good to have you on the show. Your book is divided into two parts and call them policy considerations and constitutional considerations. Your policy arguments, I think, are significant and we ought to be debating them as a country. I have to confess, however, that I found your constitutional arguments less compelling. And let me tell you why so you can respond. 
One of your chapters relies very heavily on the guarantee clause of the Constitution, but you acknowledge that there's virtually no jurisprudence on the subject, and it hasn't been invoked very often for any purpose. Now, maybe it's a dormant portion of the Constitution that will be amenable for your purposes, but I have to say I'm very skeptical about the line of reasoning that would get from a general guarantee of a Republican form of government to the judicial conclusion that public sector unions are unconstitutional. The arguments that you make based on chief executive's Article II powers are better grounded. But as I looked at the cases that you were citing, most of them, including the most recent cases, turn out to be First Amendment cases and not Article II cases at all. So on what basis are you so confident that public sector unions are unconstitutional? Well, first of all, these are excellent questions. And I didn't say that I was confident. I, I said I thought this was the right legal rule. So I'll start with the guarantee clause. The guarantee clause has been up to the Supreme Court maybe three or four times. And in each case, the court declined to enforce the guarantee clause because the issues presented involved political issues better suited for the legislature. So in one case, uh, Luther V. Borden, the question was which of two competing Rhode Island state constitutions was more Republican? And the Supreme Court held, well, that's something that the legislatures or the voters should decide, not the courts. And it seems like a perfectly sound reason. But there is a fair amount of debate and discussion about the Guarantee Clause through history. There was a book written on the history of the Guarantee Clause by William Wecheck 50 years ago that goes into all this. Uh, Lincoln was citing it for this and that. And Madison talks about the Guarantee Clause and what its purpose is. And its purpose was to basically put in the Constitution a core constitutional principle, which is someone who is elected to serve the voters can't delegate that authority to a private citizen. And what they were worried about in the Constitution was the delegation to some sort of aristocracy. You know, whoever got elected in Maryland would give it back to all those aristocrats who were running Maryland before or something. But Madison said it prevents ceding governing authority to nobles, aristocrats, or, quote, any favored class. And there is learning over the years about the non-delegation doctrine. The non-delegation doctrine I'm referring to is not to other branches, but to private citizens. And so I think it's a sound case that you can't give basically a veto power and all these controls to a private group in this case, the public union. So the Janus case in 2018 by the Supreme Court, where they held under the First Amendment that the states couldn't compel non-union members to pay agency fees because it was forced speech under the First Amendment, that opinion could have been written in five or 10 pages. Instead, it went on for about 50 pages about how public unions had made government essentially ungovernable. And it seemed to me as if the court was searching for a theory. So I'm not insecure about making this argument. You're right that you have to, you know, it takes a step forward to win, but I don't think it's a big step. So on that, just on Article 2, there is a lot of law, all of which I've read, boringly, 
on the authority of the president to, for example, fire postmasters who were appointed for fixed terms before the end of their terms. So there's actually a fair amount of authority on on president's power to, you know, fire employees. You're right that the more recent cases have been more in the nature of First Amendment cases, but they continue to cite and reaffirm those old holdings. And I think the Article Two case is not just strong, but almost kind of irrefutable. You you can't take away the president's effective authority over executive branch personnel. So Damon, there have been a number of books and articles that have come out in the recent past about the sort of sclerotic nature of our system, demosclerosis and other books, you know, that point out that perhaps part of the reason that people are so frustrated is that it is really, really hard in our system to to get things done. Now, some of that is just baked in because it's what our founders wanted. They wanted to make it difficult to pass laws and so on. But arguably, this is another layer of sclerosis that was not part of the founders' plan and that could be changed if we're bold enough, and as Mr. Phillips wants to do. Well, I, I could be persuaded of that. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of public uh, public employee unions, so I, I'm I was sympathetic to this argument and book, uh, and I liked a lot of it. Um, I, I would though like to kind of uh, take Bill's comment kind of in a slightly different direction and, and make a related point. That's kind of one of my hobby horses, which is that. Politics takes place on two levels. You have, first of all, like ordinary politics, which is the parties kind of squaring off with their own issue agendas, and then they compete for votes, and they have an election, and then you have one or the other has a majority, and then that majority tries to pass laws to further its agenda. But then there's a second layer of politics that has to do kind of with the rules of the game, and that's where the courts come in. So that's where the parties kind of do battle to win elections so that they get the right to appoint judges and Supreme court justices who will then decide on what's allowed and what isn't. And that's a different way to try to win a political argument. So one way to deal with this issue would be to say, here I am, Philip K. Howard, here's my book. These are all the arguments which you do present in the first part of the book. These are the arguments about why these kinds of unions are bad. Therefore, we should change our laws so that we don't have them anymore or their powers are weakened in various ways. But we decide this democratically through putting that issue up for debate, having an election, and then moving forward with that agenda when you gain power, hopefully. But you take the other path, which is what we need to do is say you can't do that. This thing that we've had, these kinds of unions for over a century now, yeah, we've had them all this time, but actually that was always wrong. It should not be permitted in our system that you do that. I think our politics, and this is again my hobby horse, I think our politics has way too many claims like this where instead of 
just fighting it out in the political arena. We kind of try to do an end run around those debates and instead try to gain control of the rulemaking authority to rule the other side's position out of bounds. And so I'm wondering in light of if you grant anything to that construal of our problems, why is your way of doing it through constitutionalism, even aside from the specific constitutional questions that Bill raised about whether there even is evidence in the text of the Constitution to back up your reading, why we would choose to do that by that path rather than the path of ordinary politics? Well, again, another good question. These unions have not been there for 100 years. They got the power to do what I argue against only in the late 1960s without anybody noticing it, without any serious debate about what the meaningful differences are between trade union bargaining where the origin story is very different, you know, the, where manufacturers were mangling child labor and such. So, so it's a, there, there were no mangling back in the late 60s. Most of these people were already covered by civil service protections. The, the people running the public employee association simply wanted power. But the reason I think it's a constitutional solution more appropriately is not just a practical reason, but for another reason that I argue in the book, which is that Public employees, they have fiduciary duty to the public sector and to the common good. And that's what's FDR's point. And what they've done here by collective bargaining is not what other interest groups do. Other interest groups get, they give money, they argue for special benefits of one sort or another, and you have debates over it. And they ask for their sliver of this or that from the public trough, a subsidy here or there. The public unions have harnessed the mass of big government against the reform of big government. They are different in degree, hugely, from all other interest groups, and they do it not to get a subsidy here or there. They do it to take control of the entire operating machinery of government so that democracy, I would argue, cannot work. In the decade before George Floyd was killed, the Minneapolis Police Department had 2,600 complaints of abusive behavior by the police force. 12 resulted in discipline, and the most harsh discipline was a 40-hour suspension. So you're talking about a system of government with near zero accountability, and accountability is, in fact, the operating lever of democracy. It is a process of accountability, and those links have been broken. So I think it's just more significant than other issues, and because they're so big, as I argue in the book, I don't think a political solution is realistic. Okay. Kathy Young, you grew up in a country where unions were illegal. Uh, what's your view on all of this? Well, no, independent unions were illegal. Right, right. But those are the only kind. There were so-called trade unions uh, at every workplace, except that, of course, they were really just government uh, bodies right. that... Uh, uh, you know, had no independent existence at all uh, and certainly didn't do any kind of bargaining. So, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a whole different story. Um, so, yeah, I thought the constitutional argument was really interesting. I mean, I would like to see it tested in court. It would certainly be a fascinating challenge to what I think a lot of people take for granted, which is that these unions exist. I was wondering if there was any 
chance of possibly congressional action in this area to maybe at least curb some of these practices that Phil identifies as especially pernicious in this area. Yeah, Phil, what about that? I mean, the Congress did pass the reforms to the Civil Service Act. You mentioned that in the book in 1978. You know, Congress has power here. Sure. All the legislatures have power. They're just not going to exercise it. I mean, you all know how, I mean, Bill especially, you knows how Congress works. I mean, it's amazing how much you can buy for a $20,000 contribution. The veto points in Washington, I mean, Washington mm-hmm. is a giant engine of the status quo. So it would it would take a crisis. But, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do with the book, and we are pursuing the constitutional arguments, and the Constitution will mean what the Supreme Court says it means, whether or not there's been that case before. So, and my whole career was as an appellate lawyer. So I'm used to going to the Supreme Court and making these types of arguments. So I'm not, you know, I think it is what it is. But but I also think that what's happened to governance in this country is a scandal. It should be a scandal that, you know, 23 schools in Baltimore have not one student proficient in reading. <laughs> not one student. So it's a scandal about the Minneapolis Police Department. It's a scandal that there's no accountability. So I'm hoping that the book will, in fact, also unleash some political debate, as Bill was saying and that Damon was saying, that I think would be very constructive. And by the way, politics is not separate from court decisions entirely. <laughs> you know, So it's against the backdrop of what citizens care about and want that courts make decisions. Right. And I think one contribution of your book is to highlight for readers a problem that they might have dimly perceived, but they didn't quite see how it all worked. You know, that they know it's very hard to get reform. They know you can't fire a teacher. There are rubber rooms and they know you seemingly can't hold cops accountable for shooting um, unarmed people. But I don't think they recognize the role of unions and union rules All right. Well, thank you. This is a very good discussion. And we will now turn to the troubles of the former president. This week, it was just crazy how the entire sort of chattering class was glued to its phones, its screens, waiting to see whether Trump's prediction that he would be arrested on Tuesday came true. A lot of people hoping that it would. And Kathy Young, I'm going to start with you. I mean, people on both sides think this is going to help them, right? I mean, there are a lot of people saying this is the best thing that could happen to Trump. It makes him the center of attention. It's what he actually wants. It's good for him. And of course, then there are people on the other side saying, you know, finally, you know, the the rule of law will be vindicated. Okay, it's not the best case. It's about sex and porn stars and whatever. But that guy, he did so many horrible things that somebody has to hold him accountable. So go for it. My impression is that to some extent, there is both uh, jubilation and apprehension on both sides. And I'm sort of leaving out the hardcore MAGA people who are just horrified and, you know, think that their guy is being martyred and so on. You know, we we live in such unpredictable times that I think it's really difficult to say exactly how this indictment would play out if it does happen. 
And of course, now I think we're all wondering what this whole thing was with this announcement. Was this just Trump trying to get attention or you know, whip up the base? But yeah, I think a lot of us do believe that an indictment is likely to happen sometime soon. I'm uh, like many people, I'm kind of torn about it. I'm persuaded by the arguments that it would be better for the Georgia case uh, this attempted vote tampering case, essentially, to take precedence on the theory that if you start with the weaker case, which this seems to be, it's going to undercut the rest by making them look like part of the witch hunt. But I do think that it's an interesting conclusion to what I hope is going to be the only Trump presidency, that we now have these apparently multiple indictments um, moving through the courts. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, I think a lot of us wish Trump would just kind of quietly slink off into oblivion, but we've all seen that that's not going to happen. So maybe this is the way to put an end to his political career once and for all. Yeah, Bill, I do worry about what Kathy mentioned, namely that if this indictment comes down and if it's the first one, it's going to get this tremendous explosion of attention. And then if the serious indictments for the serious crimes come down later, isn't there a danger that people will say, oh, you know, we've seen this all before. They're just out to get him for anything. I'm worried about that. Well, I think you're right to worry about that, Mona. And I don't think there's any disagreement on the proposition that the gravamen of this case is least central to the really serious issues that former President Trump's conduct has raised, issues about democracy and the rule of law. And I think most people wish that something else would come first, one of the other cases. That said, I think we may be misreading public opinion just a bit. There was a survey that came out just yesterday that found that about 70% of the American people you know, think that for a political candidate to pay someone hush money to shut up about an issue that is germane to an election is indeed a crime, and all the more so if the funds come from funds raised for a political campaign. And by a margin of 12 percentage points, they are more likely to say that he should be indicted because of one or both of these than that he should not be. So we may be inside the Beltway talking to ourselves about this issue, and the public may have somewhat different sentiments. So the question of whether this will have a negative impact on the more significant cases is, I think, quite imponderable at this point. And I don't think on the basis of the evidence, we can commit ourselves to one view or another of the matter. It's also the case that the timing of the various cases is going to be affected by factors other than the timing of the indictments. We have at least one lawyer in our midst, if not more than one. And I think that you all will know that there are various modes of delay that are more applicable in some settings than others. So I don't think that this is as serious a tactical or even strategic question as a lot of people inside the Beltway seem to think it is. 
Damon Linker, the other drama that played out this week a little bit further was the DeSantis versus Trump story. DeSantis gave an interview, it appears, Morgan, and, you know, he notched it up a bit against Trump. And he's always careful to emphasize what Trump is accused of here, (laughs) payoffs to a porn star, and to say, oh, I don't know anything about that sort of thing. So that's a little dig. He also walked back, um, in my opinion, his statements about Ukraine. I mean, you'd sort of predicted this last week, you know, oh, you, you didn't think he was quite going all the way or leaving himself some wiggle room. So now he has said that Putin is a war criminal and that he wants Putin to lose this war. So that's a little different too. So what did what did you make of those? Well, just on that latter point about foreign policy and the Ukraine war, it is interesting to me that like he would, you know, move to the he's a war criminal line, which is like the last place I would expect a, you know, Republican who wants to prove how tough and unilateralist he is. We're not even party to the International Criminal Court. And so now he's like deferring to their authority to decide how this is going to play out. It was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> it's not what I would have expected mm. to hear. Uh, I As I said last week, I do suspect that his statements about Ukraine and Russia have been very carefully gone over on the part of his staff to try to hew as close to Trump as he can while actually kind of between the lines, leaving himself exactly that wiggle room to adjust later. He is not going completely to the Trump line that, you know, Russia is no threat at all and our real threat are fellow Americans, which is Trump's truly outrageous claim uh, in a recent speech. He also seems to be leaving open on national interest grounds to actually decide, well, you know, we shouldn't do more than Biden's doing, but, you know, we also shouldn't pull back very much because it's at least in that much of our interest. (laughs) So I think he's sort of dancing around it like that. On the other issue about kind of just straight Trump v. DeSantis, I've been really struck by, you know, we've been now into several weeks of news cycles where there hasn't been, objectively speaking, a huge amount going on in politics. And so there's been a lot of uh, sort of horse racy stories and analysis about DeSantis rising. And those of us who watch uh, the conservative movement and its evolution over the years and are very aware that National Review and lots of other kind of elite Republican and conservative institutions have come out very strongly for DeSantis. Like people who at first opposed Trump and then became kind of anti-anti-Trump and remained that through most of the Trump presidency really want an alternative who can sort of capture Trump's energy and, and yet be better than Trump. And that's DeSantis for them. And we saw a poll from Monmouth this week. And so far that and any other recent poll. There have been a few in March. You know, they show DeSantis doing okay. He's certainly ahead of everybody else except Trump. And some of them, he's in the mid-30s. That seems to kind of be the consensus. But Trump remains healthily ahead of him, usually around 10 points, except for one poll from CNN that had DeSantis up two. That's by far the outlier. And I think this is after, again, weeks of the press focusing on every little thing DeSantis says. And 
as far as I'm concerned, and this is, of course, also while Trump is much more in the news now, giving more speeches, all this hubbub about him being indicted for like half a dozen different things. In and also his states. all caps, his all caps rants on Truth Social, which have been completely deranged, completely deranged. And he's not even on Twitter, but it doesn't matter because as soon as he does a Truth Social post, uh, every journalist Dinesh D'Souza just it. puts it on his right. Exactly. Well, but all the journalists do too. They do screenshots. Yeah, that's true. So it's as if he's on Twitter. I just look at this and I think to myself, when is this going to switch that there is a consensus among Republican voters that actually all things considered, uh, we'd rather have DeSantis. And so far it has not happened. Now it is early and we don't know, as Bill was pointing out, exactly how all of the talk of these different uh, swirling investigations is going to play out, especially when one of them actually drops and he does get indicted and we get our very first president in handcuffs, if it comes to that. We don't know how that will happen, but it, does that strike you as the kind of thing that is going to lead like like kind of on-the-fence Republicans to say, you know what, I thought I still like Trump, but now I really really don't think so. I don't see it. And I've become sort of notorious for clearly stating that I think DeSantis would be preferable to Trump, however bad he might be. But um, you know, I don't see it happening yet. And so then the question becomes for us all to ponder, what's going to do it? Is it going to be if DeSantis comes out really strong against Trump? Has anybody done better after going after the jugular with Trump? He's tried the, I won't even say his name, like Voldemort root. Now he's sort of muddling about in the middle. I don't know. It's an interesting question. And I think really the one that's going to keep coming up and you're going to hear us discuss over and over again over the, my goodness, interminable next 10 months till a voter actually casts a ballot. <laughs> Very true. All right. Philip Howard, feel free to comment on anything that you've heard so far, but I also would love to hear your views as an attorney on one thing that happened this week, which was the judge ruling that one of Trump's legion of lawyers has to testify and hand over documents because of the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. That almost never happens. I mean, it's really, at least at this level. The facts have to be compelling to want to do that. And as someone who's known Trump a long time, you know, long before he became political, I've he's somebody who's always lived on the edge of legality and then had all of his aides be on the other side so that he had plausible deniability. And he clearly mm. did that to his lawyers. He did that to Michael Cohen. So that's par for the course. And it's just yet another victim of, <laughs> of trying to do what Trump wanted. Any action against Trump that's, you know, whether it's justified or not, will be used by Trump as a basis for further polarization. And so weighing whether it's good or bad, it's he probably deserves to be indicted in all these cases and convicted. But he's a genius. He has a feral genius, right, at, at getting people riled up and at pushing buttons. And he's got, you know, what, one third of the country more in that mode. I don't think it's one third of the country. It's a good, solid third of the Republican Party, I see. Okay. but that's different. That's maybe one-sixth of the country. Okay. Uh, but Well, anyway, he will use it to get more attention and be in the news. I mean, one can only hope that like Joe McCarthy, the public eventually just get tired of all the ranting and raving. 
Right. I, I should amend what I just said, though, because in terms of the, I was referring to the rock solid supporters, you know, the always Trumpers within the Republican coalition. But of course, he also has the whole conservative ecosystem. He's got, you know, the Republican office holders who are now rushing to say that they want to investigate the prosecutor, and that magnifies his power and influence, of course, dramatically. All right. Um, Thank you all for that. Let us now turn to an anniversary. It has been 20 years since the Iraq war. And uh, it's, there have been a few really interesting essays looking back on it and whether it was a mistake. Most Americans now believe that that war was a mistake, 61%, according to an Axios poll. But some people go much further and believe it was a catastrophe. So I'm going to start with you, Kathy. You've had a lot of interesting things to say about this, including a piece you wrote in 2013 where you saw, as you usually do, you were very measured and balanced. So why don't you give us your sense of the equities here? Uh, Yeah, I've been in a sort of interesting place with regard to the war in Iraq because I was never in the beginning when a lot of people kind of across the political spectrum were very gung-ho about it uh, for a variety of reasons. I was sort of mildly skeptical. I mean, I thought the the arguments that, oh, we're going to build this model democracy in the Middle East and it's going to be wonderful. I just always found that very far-fetched. And I certainly didn't think after the initial victory, I didn't think it was going to be an easy path from then on. On the other hand, Looking back, and I think my position really hasn't changed much since 2013, I think that in a sense, uh, first of all, historically, I think the jury is still out as to how this is going to play out in the long run. Because, you know, I do think it matters that this removed an incredibly brutal dictator who was Really, everyone agrees a very, very bad actor on the international scene. Can I interrupt you for one second, Kathy? Let's just review for some of our younger listeners. He invaded Iran. Okay. He started the Iran-Iraq war. He invaded and attempted to swallow Kuwait. He lobbed missiles into Israel. So that's three countries he made war on in one fashion or another. Plus, he was tied to many terrorists. So, and he brutalized his own people in the most horrific fashion. So let's just set the table with that. With chemical weapons against his own yes. people. I mean, you don't yes. really, I mean, even Putin hasn't done that, you know? So right. I think that uh, there's certainly a lot of evidence. There's no evidence that he was linked to 9-11, uh, to the attacks as a lot of people believed at the time, but he was certainly linked to support for terrorism in general. Now, one problem with history, of course, is that you never really have solid counterfactuals. We have no idea what would have happened, you know, if Hussein had stayed in power. A lot of people believe, by the way, that he would have grown more powerful without the war, because this is when the oil prices were going up, and that he was likely to benefit from that, and that even if he wasn't working on uh, weapons of mass destruction Mm -hmm. at the time, it was likely to happen. So we don't know whether there would have been an Arab Spring, you know, without the war in Iraq. We don't know how that would have played out in Iraq and whether the loss of life would have been any less or possibly greater than what we saw in the aftermath of the war. So, you know, the thing that has always fascinated me and that very, very few people talk about is that apparently in poll after poll, 
the majority of Iraqis have actually said that they believe, you know, despite all of the hardships of the war, I think something like 70% or more have consistently said that they believe the removal of Saddam was worth it. And, you know, when you consider that there's probably like maybe 15 to 20% of the population that enjoyed privileged positions and, you know, was part of the regime under Saddam, the fact that so many people say that is really remarkable. It doesn't mean, by the way, that they love the Americans or that they think it was, it's great that the Americans were there or that they loved the occupation. Because, of course, when you're an occupying power, you really find yourself in this very, very difficult position. So I think that this is not a pro-war argument necessarily. or It's certainly not an argument that we handled it well because I don't think anyone would really argue that. But I'm especially kind of annoyed by comparisons between what we did in Iraq and what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine, because we were not trying to annex Iraq. We didn't grab the oil, by the way, as Donald Trump has argued we should have. Yeah, no, exactly. All right, let's leave it there, Kathy. Thank you so much. So, Bill Galston, it's a huge topic. It will be studied, presumably, for a very long time. And, and you know, one of the things that critics point out is that it did increase uh, Iran's power, which was not an intention. On the other hand, Bush's main goal was to prevent another attack on American soil and to eliminate a brutal, erratic and dangerous tyrant, as somebody put it in the Atlantic. It, it came at a very, very high price, at probably much too high a price. But it was not, as Kathy was saying, a war of aggression. It was not a war crime, although some war crimes were committed inevitably. Well, how are you feeling about it? Well, my position has the virtue of consistency. I'll let you and our listeners judge its other qualities. I was an early fervent opponent of the war. I spent the summer and fall of 2002 arguing against going to war with Iraq. I was sure, based on long knowledge of some of the players in the Bush administration, that that's where we were heading. And I did not think that it would serve American interests in the long run, and I do not think it has. Let me be brief and crisp on this point. First of all, it is now impossible to appoint a government in Iraq without the approval of the Iranian government. That is a fact, number one. Number two, it contributed to a dramatic loss of U.S. credibility mm-hmm. when the case we made before the world turned out to be false. It discredited U.S. intelligence, and it made it much harder for the United States to conduct international diplomacy credibly. And it has taken us a very long time to crawl out of that credibility gap. Number three, it represented a massive diversion of resources and attention from what we now recognize to be the real threat facing the country. And number four, it contributed to Republican isolationism. A lot of what's going on in the Republican Party now is a reaction to what many Republicans, including a lot of rank-and-file blue-collar types, see as the waste and futility of the war. And that is the way Donald Trump phrased it when he went to war against the war and against George W. Bush and John McCain in 2015 and 2016. 
four strikes and you're more than out. I do not see, in retrospect, any case for the proposition that the benefits of the war outweighed its costs. Philip K. Howard, Bill Galston makes a compelling case. What do you say? I think that the cases that have been just discussed are, make more sense than, than I can't add to it, only that if you're going to take over a country and replace its leaders, you have to leave coherent national institutions run by the people. And we didn't do that. We left Iraq in chaos. So yeah. Damon, I know where you stand, and I do want to hear from you. It does, though, occur to me, and I'll put my cards on the table, that I was a supporter of the war. I now think that was in error. I was influenced by the fact that after World War II, the United States was a very benevolent occupier of Japan and Germany and did wonders for those both of those countries. I thought our role in the Balkans was entirely beneficial and admirable in other places. And so I had uh, maybe naive hopes that we would be able to competently administer post-war Iraq and free the Iraqi people from this desperate tyranny and leave them better off. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. And partly it might have been that we're just not as good at being administrators as we once were, or that it was a very different sort of country. I'd probably a little of yeah. both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I posted on my Substack this week an email that I wrote in October of 2002, so about five months before the start of the war. Back then, I was a conservative, and I worked for First Things Magazine, which was thoroughly pro-Iraq war before it happened, and that was not unusual. It was pretty close to unanimous on the right back then, um, aside from Pat Buchanan's magazine, The American Conservative, and other paleocon little organs. And my case in that email was basically, you know, I can't support this coming war. And I tried to explain why. And readers can go to the Substack and read it if you want. It's kind of long, so I'm not going to try to summarize it here. But it was very much, I conceded the point that I assumed Saddam had weapons of mass destruction and then said that he was deterrable even if he has them. I also addressed the democratization hopes and said that I thought that this would be a mistake and that it would be far harder and maybe impossible. And I guess that was thoroughly vindicated, or at least over the the short and medium term until you get to much longer term. Um, and so I'll just say that once it became clear that Saddam Hussein did not even have the weapons of mass destruction, that did not weaken my opposition to the war, since all of my arguments against the war presumed that he did have them. Once it became clear that he didn't, it really seemed to be a truly disastrous mistake. And then that was also in my initial prognostications. I, of course, did not foresee the extent of the mess that would come from attempting to occupy the country for an extended period of time, the resulting civil war. And the last point I'll just make on this is anyone who says that it was worth it has to ponder what the, I don't know, several few hundred thousand dead people would say as a result of like who, you know, what they would say if they could be asked. I mean, we don't know exactly how many Iraqis died in the resulting violence and insurgency and civil war. But 
it's estimated at well over at least 100,000 people. And as bad as life under Saddam Hussein could be, I bet you he would not have killed 100,000 of his own citizens in those same years. Then when you factor in the Syrian civil war, which probably would not have taken place had we not completely destabilized its neighbor, uh, where well over half a million people have died. And I, I frankly I find myself astonished when I read some of the things I have recently in the last couple of weeks from people who try to explain that actually this was all to the better, to the greater good. Yeah. I just And don't. the Syrian civil war in turn created a refugee crisis that somewhat destabilized Europe as well. Yeah, it was the first domino in the yeah. populist wave yeah. around the world. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the knock-on effects they really are, are But okay, so these comments have all been very, very excellent. I would just say one thing, which is when I look back, there were a lot of really bad faith arguments that were made that still sort of stick in the craw. One of them was, you know, the left-wingers who had rallies saying, no blood for oil as if you know this was the purpose of the war that was never the purpose of the war and it's important to stress that that was a that was a a simplistic and 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 really unfortunate and really dishonest attack on it i mean there were much better arguments many of which we've just heard and the other was bush lied people died look it, it rhymes i get it but bush had no reason to lie bush deceived well you know that old saying you know from uh, who is it richard feynman i think you know you must not deceive yourself and you are the easiest person to deceive well bush deceived himself first and foremost as many people did and and he was not alone all these intelligence agencies all over the world not just ours but others britain and others believed fervently and said that they were certain that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction and so on. And, um, and so, you know, the idea that this war was the result of a huge lie by President Bush was just not true, but it, it was bad enough that he deceived himself. It was bad enough that it was a terrible blunder and, and a catastrophic mistake. By putting out that it was a lie it contributed to the you know cynicism the unnecessary cynicism in my opinion about the nature of decision making in a democracy okay got that off my chest all right well thank you all that was a good discussion and we will now turn to our final segment which is highlight or low light of the week and i will start with our guest philip k howard Thank you, Mona, and thanks so much for having me. It's really been fun listening to you all. It's so smart. My low light of the week is the L.A. teachers going on strike yet again for for three days so that 400,000 kids don't have school, you know, soon after having two years of no school. Uh, allegedly, the teachers did this in sympathy to the service workers who were going on strike because their pay is, uh, you know, it's not enough to support a family and they really should get paid more. It's just, you know, the horrible situation of people who work at McDonald's and such. But the irony is that the school district doesn't have the money to pay the service workers because the teachers union contract gives them no ability to find efficiencies elsewhere in the system. And so one of the factoids that came out this week is that if the teacher retirees simply were required to use whatever public health care was available, like Medicare, 
that itself is more than enough to give a 25% raise to all the service workers. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. Bill Galston. Well, I have a low light and a highlight. So I'm violating the or clause in your invitation. Okay. (laughs) My low light to return to, you know, a sore subject is Ron DeSantis's alleged attempt to, quote, clean up his remarks on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So in this Piers Morgan interview, you know, he responded to Morgan by saying, well, my remark about a territorial dispute has been mischaracterized. And now let me read you the word salad that he spewed in order to defend that proposition. And I quote, what I'm referring to is where the fighting is going on now, which is that eastern border region, Donbass, and then Crimea. And you had a situation where Russia has had that. I don't think legitimately, but they had. There's a lot of ethnic Russians there. So that's some difficult fighting. And that's what I was referring to. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. But now for my highlight, which is high on my list of best Supreme Court cases of all time. And I will refer to it as the case of Jack Daniels versus Bad Spaniels. You may have heard of this. A doggy toy company made a doggy toy allegedly filled with a dog urine-smelling substance and shaped just like a Jack Daniels bottle. There were various other takeoffs on the Jack Daniels brand. The humorless Jack Daniels company sued for copyright infringement, et cetera, et cetera. And they got a terrific litigator, Lisa Blatt, to argue her case. And here's a portion of the colloquy that ensued between her and Justice Alito. You know, and she, Ms. Blatt, says, Justice Alito, I don't know how old you are, but you went to law school. You're very smart. You're very analytical. And Justice Alito cut her off and said, well, I went to a law school where I didn't learn any law. And uh, I read that comment. He did go to Yale. And I read that comment to my wife, also a Yale law school graduate, and no admirer of Justice Alito, who broke down in laughter, because that is exactly what she told me (laughs) after she returned from her first week of bar review before taking the bar exam. And she, she came into our little apartment in downtown DC in June of 1982. And she said, Bill, Bill, did you know that there were all these rules? Uh, and uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> I could I could go on. It's an immensely entertaining colloquy, you know, by ordinary standards, let alone the low bar on humor at the Supreme Court. And but there is a deep truth embedded in that colloquy. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yes. Very true. And I will just add that I know lawyers who will not hire Yale Law graduates because they are sort of jumped up academics and not really lawyers. But anyway, 
I'm exaggerating. They're great lawyers who came from Yale Law School. Okay, uh, Kathy Young. Uh, well, I'm afraid Bill kind of stole my uh, low light because I was going to mention Ron DeSantis' attempted walk back. So I guess instead I will mention a highlight, which I do think is the arrest warrant against uh, Putin issued by the International Criminal Court. I don't think anyone believes that he's going to be hauled off in handcuffs. But I do think that it's kind of uh, bracing in a way to see uh, the sitting president slapped with the war criminal label. And there are some Russian dissidents, because uh, they've had this rule in the Russian media that if somebody is labeled a foreign agent by the Russian government, any mention of them in the media has to be accompanied by an asterisk and a footnote saying, you know, recognized as a foreign agent. And some people in the Russian opposition and most of which is now abroad, have suggested that any time Putin is mentioned, that there should be an asterisk and a footnote saying, accused war criminal. <laughs> so that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good. All right. Damon Linker. My highlight is an old-fashioned opinion column by one Charles Lane, who's a frequent guest here on the podcast. He had a very good column this week titled, The Most Underrated Story in U.S. Politics, The Post-Trump Consensus. He brings together a lot of different threads that uh, I've seen talked about in different contexts. We even glancingly mention it occasionally here. I know Matt Iglesias does at his Substack, but it's put together very nicely in this where Lane simply makes the point that for all of our polarization, for all of our rancorous politics, where it sometimes feels like the parties have no overlap whatsoever, it's astonishing that since Donald Trump burst on the scene, uh, you know, six to seven years ago, we have seen the kind of policy overlap between the parties actually increase. And he goes through and very quickly goes goes through a long list of these. One is the uh, consensus across both parties that China is quite a bit basically the major threat that the United States faces in the world. Wrapped up with that, the skepticism about free trade that we started to get around the time of the 26th election, where Trump and Bernie Sanders really took a strong kind of anti-free trade agreement position. And this has become sort of the de facto consensus view of both parties. Entitlement reform, really, you know, it's clear some Republicans still would like to go with it, but anytime they edge close to it, Democrats attack them for it, and they seem to very quickly back off. Both parties also are sort of skeptical of raising taxes. I mean, Democrats still talk about a wealth tax on the very richest, but other than that, not much more. And this even extends to gas taxes, carbon taxes for environmental purposes among Democrats. And finally, a kind of rhetorical, at least, hostility to corporations, drug companies, media companies, technology companies. Both parties kind of agree about all that stuff. And yet, Yet, very little actually seems to get done about all of them, and Lane has some speculation about exactly why that is in the piece, which I do hope readers will look at. It was a good chunk of food for thought. Yeah, it was a good piece. I agree. Let me just say that with the exception of recognizing 
the threat that China poses. I think every single one of those areas of consensus is for the worse. <laughs> you know, every single one. We should raise certain taxes. <laughs> Free trade is good. You know, well, we have we- to reform entitlements, et cetera, et cetera. The, the consensus is awful. We are not a populist podcast here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of populism, my highlight, well, I've got two, actually. One concerns what's been happening in France. So surely seen that people are out in the streets protesting, and there have been a number of stories about this. The French people are enraged, millions of people taking to the streets because Emmanuel Macron threatens to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Some of us on this podcast are past those ages already and still working. Admittedly, it's much easier when you have a white-collar job. I understand that. But the level of vitriol that's directed against Macron and the kinds of complaints that you hear from people where they say things like, this is not just about the retirement age. This is about the very nature of the French way of life. It's about our entire existence. Well, really? I mean, two years? Besides, every developed country in the world, all of them, from Japan to Switzerland to Canada to the United States, we all have the same problem, which is an aging population and very, very generous benefits and something's got to give. And Macron is saying, I'll take it upon myself to do the dirty deed because it has to be done. And of course, it's never going to be popular. People don't want to do it but it needs to be done. So I don't know. Maybe he's a hero. I don't know all the ins and outs of French politics. Maybe he's not doing it the right way, but this is the sort of thing that does have to happen. All right. My other highlight is a story that appeared in the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is that there is a, despite predictions that the pandemic would lead to a drop in births, the opposite has happened. There has been a little bit of what they're saying is a, not a baby boom, but a baby bump that has happened since the pandemic. And they think it was driven largely by college-educated women who um, have found that through the combination of maybe more work-at-home options and flexibility and so forth, have been able to make room in their lives for a baby and with their husbands and partners and so forth. You know, you hear a lot about how, you know, our declining birth rate is not susceptible to government reforms, that this is not something that you can stimulate by any sort of policy. And yet, we have seen that this pandemic and the changes that it wrought in society did have an effect on people's intimate decisions about starting families or increasing the size of their families. So I think there's a lot to be learned from this. I think it requires a lot more study and maybe polling to find out what contributed to these parents' decisions, but it's a good thing. We need more babies in America and babies are wonderful. And so I'm happy about the baby bump that we have seen post-pandemic. With that, I want to thank our guest, Philip Howard, and our special guest panelist, Kathy Young, and my usual panelists, and also our sound engineer today, Jonathan Seary, and our producer every week is Katie Cooper. 
I'm not so happy with you listeners. I'm sorry, but you know, you have not been rating us. You have not been telling your friends. I mean, come on now. You have to, you have to step it up a little bit, get the word out that this is the kind of podcast that would make this country a better place because we're civil and we're intelligent and we're calm and the world needs more of that. So please do your part, get the word out, and we will return next week as every week. 